0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. How can a tiny ant change how lions hunt? There's a hint. It involves trees and elephants.
1: So you've got these tiny three milligram ants that are defending trees against 3 billion milligram elephants.
0: It's Tuesday, February 27th, and you're listening to Science Friday. I'm sci producer Charles Bergquist. Coming up, we'll talk with researchers studying the predator-prey dynamics of the African savanna about the chain of effects one invasive ant species had on the ecosystem. But first, Kathleen Davis talks with two researchers investigating the psychology of trivia how to get better at it, and why some people seem to be much more adept at recalling fun trivia facts than others. Here's Kathleen.
2: I love doing trivia. Every couple of weeks, I go to my local dive bar for trivia night. I'm also an avid Jeopardy! watcher. But despite all this, I'm still not very good. But rather than give up on my dream of being a top-tier trivia player, this got me thinking, can I actually get better at trivia? And why are some people better at it than others? A new study in the journal Psychonomic Bulletin and Review looked at exactly this. And here to break down the psychology of trivia are two co-authors of that paper, Dr. Monica Tew, psychology researcher at Emory University and a Jeopardy winner. She's based in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Miriam Alley. Assistant Professor of Psychology at Columbia University in New York. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. It's amazing to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. I'm really excited. Yeah, so am I. So Monica, tell me a little bit about where the idea for this study came from. I mean, was it from your time
3: on Jeopardy? Yeah, I mean, to be fully frank, um, since I first was on Jeopardy as a senior in high school, when I went to college and I majored in psychology, I was like, no, one day I'm going to have a research study where we can call Ken Jennings and ask him to come in and get his brain scanned, <laughs> which we didn't scan anyone's brains for this study, so I could still do it. But I have been curious for a long time about how trivia experts' memory I suppose, including mine, is maybe different than other people's because I've always known other people in my classes and my grad programs who are so smart, and yet they all were like, Monica, why do you know all this random stuff? (laughs) And so it really wasn't until um, I was in grad school where I felt like I had enough of a science idea to actually do a research study about it.
2: So you didn't get to scan Ken Jennings's brain, but did you talk to other Jeopardy! contestants about this?
3: Yeah. So in 2019, I was invited back to do the Jeopardy! All-Star Games. And while I was there, I was meeting other Jeopardy! champions who were so great and so smart and so knowledgeable. And as we were talking about people's you know, experience of knowing and remembering trivia, something that I realized that we seemed to have in common was that All of the experts that I talked to seem to have a really good memory for the episodic details of when they learned trivia facts. So like, where were you? What textbook? What class? Like, where did you sit? What trip did you go on where you saw this in a museum? Like, all of that side memory that is about learning the fact, but not necessarily specifically the information itself.
2: Okay, very interesting. So how did you actually test this idea, Monica? Mm
3: -hmm. So when Miriam and I were designing this research study, we knew that we had to try to teach people new facts in the lab. Because if you're trying to recruit some trivia experts and some trivia non-experts to do a study, obviously the big issue is that half of your participants already know a bunch of stuff. And so then we're not testing their memory for learning new things. We're only testing their memory for stuff they already know. So What I did with Lauren, our third co-author, was we basically like literally went to the library and checked out reference books and like went to the Met, went to EncyclopediaBritannica.com and spent so much time on there collecting lots of obscure facts to put together these little quote-unquote science and history museums. So what these museums really are is it's an online task where on each exhibit page you would see a little picture of an exhibit item, so maybe like a particular musical instrument from history, and you'd also see a little paragraph place card giving you some information about that musical instrument, and you'd be read the fact on the place card by a narrator. So what we had people do is we had them go through these museums one exhibit at a time. Then after they went through these museums, we tested their memory for three different things. So first, we tested their memory for trivia facts that they would have learned from the place cards. Then we tested their memory for which exhibit pictures they saw. So let's say you saw a picture of a Hardinger fiddle, which in this case is like a Norwegian violin-like instrument. They used it in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers for the Rohan theme. It's great. But let's say we show you two different pictures of two Hardinger fiddles. One is the one you saw before, and one is a slightly different picture of a different fiddle. But you can't use your memory to say, one is a fiddle and one is not. You have to remember exactly which one you saw. So after we tested people's memory for the facts they saw and the exhibit pictures, finally, we tested their memory for which museum they saw that picture in. Because we showed people these exhibits in two different quote unquote museums. One was called the Amber Archives, where everything was like orange themed. And one was called the Cobalt Collections, where everything was blue themed. So then when we analyzed the data, We looked at, A, how was people's memory for the facts that they learned in the study? And B, does memory for the picture that you saw in the exhibit and which museum you saw it in seem to correlate with your memory for the fact itself?
2: Okay, super fascinating. So, Mariam, when you took a look at all this data, what did you find?
3: So what we found is that
4: trivia experts were better at learning brand new novel facts in our experiment. So these are facts they'd only seen before in our study and they were better at acquiring these new facts, but they didn't have better memory overall. So if we just asked them to indicate which of the two photographs they saw in the exhibit, they weren't better at that than people who weren't experts. So their memory wasn't better across the board, but they seemed to be uniquely good at learning new facts. And the critical thing that we found was that in trivia experts, but not non-experts, when they remembered a new fact, they were also more likely to remember multiple features about how they learned it. So they remembered the details of the museum exhibit, like whether it was the Amber archives or the Cobalt collections, and the specific photo that was paired with that fact. So it really nicely dovetails with the anecdotal reports from experts that when they recall a fact, they remember details about how and where they learned it.
2: Okay, super interesting. So, Mariam, I mean, why do some people remember better than others? Do we know? Like, is that information stored in maybe different parts of the brain?
4: That's a really good question. In this particular study, we don't know whether trivia experts are better able to bind this unique information about the fact and the episode because of something different about how they're paying attention, if it's something different about how their memory systems work, or if it's something else altogether. We do know that they don't seem to be trying to do this intentionally, so it doesn't seem to be a strategy that trivia experts have that non-experts don't have, but we don't know yet whether it's something related to how they pay attention during the learning experience. Do they, you know, do they attend more broadly, whereas non-experts might attend more narrowly? or is it something related to how their memory systems work? So is it just that their episodic memory system and their kind of fact memory systems are more tightly coupled than those of non-experts?
2: Okay. So, I mean, can I take this information and apply it to my own learning? Like, can I train myself to become the winner of my local bars trivia, Miriam?
4: Uh, I wish I could answer that. I could speculate. <laughs> um, based on our results, we don't know whether this is going to be trainable. So we'd like to think that given that trivia experts have these like super bound memories between what they learned and how they learned it, that maybe if we could get non-experts to try to bind those pieces of information together, maybe they'd become more like the experts. And to answer that question, we'd really have to do another study where we try to train people to show these memory signatures of experts by binding together what they learned and how they learned it.
2: So, can you kind of walk me through? There's this concept of the memory palace. Can you kind of walk me through what this is and and what it means?
3: Yeah. So, the memory palace is a related but really relevant concept. So, when we think about a memory palace, for example, if I need to memorize, and for reference, I'm way too lazy to <laughs> learn how to do this stuff, um, but. If I need to memorize, let's say I shuffle a deck of cards and I lay out all the shuffled cards and I need to remember the order of each of the 52 cards only by looking at the deck for like 15 or 20 seconds. What I might do is I might prepare for each of the 52 cards, let's say the queen of spades versus the three of diamonds. Mm -hmm. I might prepare for each of those a particular really vivid image that I then place in a memory representation of a physical location that I know really well. So let's say like my apartment building or my office. And then if I need to remember a list of arbitrary things like the cards in the deck, I can place each of those sort of card like mental images. So for example, for the three of clubs, maybe it's like um like Jerry Seinfeld or something, I can place each of those people, places ideas into my memory palace, in this case, my mental image of my apartment. And as I walk around and I go through the list, it'll help me remember the information in that list better because people's episodic memory, their memory for places, experiences, and perceptual information. So what we can see, hear, taste, smell, et cetera, it's really good. And so memorizing lists is not something that people are generally as good at. So the memory palace is believed to work because it allows us to leverage the episodic memory system for remembering places and experience and especially navigating through places and seeing things that it allows us to use that system to help us remember lists of things. The way we think this relates to the memory that we study is that we don't actually think That trivia experts are using a memory palace, but the memory palace shows us that when we use episodic memory, it can help us remember some non-episodic memory or fact information better. And that maybe trivia experts are doing something sort of in the other direction where because their episodic memory and their fact memory are naturally talking to each other more, that that helps them remember the facts better.
2: Thank you both so much for joining me, Dr. Monica Tew, psychology researcher at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dr. Miriam Ali, assistant professor of psychology at Columbia University in New York. Thank you. It's been fun.
4: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers.
0: To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Burkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope. Of our history.
5: I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. When people talk about the interconnectedness of nature, the basic example usually goes something like the little fish eats the bug. The big fish eats the little fish, and then an even bigger fish eats that. But in reality, the relationships can be a lot more complicated. Take the example of a recent report in the Journal of Science, which describes how the arrival of an invasive ant species in Africa changed the number of zebras that get eaten by lions. Joining me now to help connect those dots are two of the researchers on that project, Jacob Goheen is a professor, and Douglas Kamaru is a graduate student, both in the Department of Zoology and Physiology at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming. Welcome to Science Friday.
1: Thanks, Sophie. Good to be here.
5: This is a bit of a twisted path, so let's step through it point by point. First, uh, to set the scene, where were you studying?
1: So this research occurred at Old Pegeta Conservancy, which is right on the equator in central Kenya. And it's about a 250 square kilometer property. It's managed jointly for wildlife conservation and also cattle ranching.
5: And can you describe the landscape there for us?
1: I'd call it a classic African savanna. So you've got, you know, too many trees to call it a grassland, and you've got too many grasses to call it a forest. So it's kind of between those two extremes. And both of those plant forms kind of co-occur, but neither really outcompetes or, or dominates the other.
5: And so that's the situation. And then these invasive ants, they arrive on the scene. So who are these
1: guys? This is the big headed ant, the Dole megacephala. And we're really not sure about its origins. It likely was introduced in bushels of produce imported from somewhere in the Indian Ocean, perhaps Mauritius. These are roughly one milligram ants, and they're labeled as one of the globe's top 100 invaders.
5: And when they invade, what happens?
1: In general, not much. <laughs> but in this instance, uh, the trees that I was just describing earlier are what we would call mermecophytes. They're ant plants. They defend themselves with these tiny little bodyguards. Um, These are called acacia ants or sometimes cocktail ants. They're tiny, but they're three times the size of a big-headed ant. So they're about three milligrams. And believe it or not, they defend trees from the world's largest extant land mammal, that being the uh, African elephant or the Savannah elephant. So you've got these tiny three milligram ants that are defending trees against 3 billion milligram elephants.
5: Hang on, how are ants defending trees against elephants?
1: So that's a great question. If you think about elephants, they're, they're unique in a number of things, one of which is their nostrils are about six or eight feet from their mouths. So their nostrils are on the tips of their trunks. And so when they're feeding on a tree, they've got to stick that trunk into a bunch of foliage and then grab a trunk full of leaves and pull. And that whole process takes about three seconds before the elephant is putting those leaves into its mouth. And in that time, you've got lots of these acacia ants that are swarming up into the nostrils of elephants. Ouch. <laughs> yeah, ouch. And... um <laughs> And because of that trunk, it kind of exposes elephants to this unusual defense by the tree. Things like giraffes will just use their tongues to swipe ants away from their eyes and nostrils. Things like black rhinos will just plug up their nostrils and eat. But the system is kind of rigged against elephants because of that trunk. And so to get at your earlier question, what the big-headed ants do is they, they form these super colonies of tens to hundreds of thousands of individuals. And unlike the acacia ants, they don't defend trees. They don't live on trees. They live in cracks and crevices in the soil. And Mm -hmm. just by virtue of their numbers, they can overwhelm and just clobber the native acacia ants and render those trees defenseless against elephants.
5: So essentially what happens is the big-headed ants come in, they destroy the defenders of the trees, the these these larger ants that have been protecting the trees from elephants, and then the elephants reduce the tree cover. Is that right?
1: Yep, you got it. Absolutely.
5: So when you lose that tree cover, what happens to the other animals?
1: I mean, the, the ones that we addressed in this study were lions and their primary prey, uh, those being plain zebra. And zebra require kind of big open expanses to detect lions. They want to see lions and then just run away from them. So in areas that are open where tree cover has been reduced, zebra can more effectively avoid lions. On the flip side of that, lions like areas that are bushy. So they like these trees. They like to hide behind them and use them as stocking cover. So you can imagine that when you go from, you know, a pretty dense savanna with lots of trees to one that is suddenly now more open, the lions are exposed and they can't ambush zebra as effectively as they once did.
5: Okay, so I think I understand the theory here. But Douglas, could you tell us a little about how you did go about proving this in practice?
6: Yeah, thanks, Sophie. What what we did, actually, we used a combination of methods. You know, we assessed a tree cover like to see how comparing areas that are invaded by the big-headed ants Mm -hmm. and the areas that are not invaded. And uh, what we noticed or what we realized is that, you know, in in invaded areas, we had about five to seven uh, times higher visibility or low tree tree covers compared to areas that we did have big-headed ants. We also collared uh, or fitted GPS collars on lions uh, to be able to tell where they are going in in real time or where they're moving.
5: Oh, wow. Wait, what was... Sorry, I have to interrupt. What was it like to put a tracking collar on a lion?
6: Quite, it's quite some work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that involves a lot of logistics because um, uh, we did that uh, in collaboration or partnership with Kenya Wildlife Service. So there's a lot of moving parts that we had to uh, put together. Mm-hmm. With lions, you have to dart them using a dart gun, uh, like kind of uh, make them sleep. And then you feed the GPS. And also it's a lot right. of work like going out in early in the morning looking for them, you know, see where they're occupying within the conservancy or vegetable. Mm -hmm. And also, we use the GPS cores to see where they are killing. Once the the, lion, we really the lion is staying in one place for long, then we go there and then we assess what actually the question is what the lion is doing there. So sometimes you go there, you find them uh, with a kill, and you are able to identify the kill. And also sometimes you could go and find some little cubs, Uh, you know, because lions, one day lions, they have little cubs, they tend to stay in one place for quite a while. Mm -hmm. We also did um, count animals like uh, zebras within the conservancy to be able to determine their densities and so on.
5: Okay. And you mentioned that so the lions aren't able to prey on the zebras as easily when they're in these areas where the big-headed ants have moved in. So did you find that the lions were going hungry, or did they end up eating something else?
6: Our hypothesis was, was if the, the lions are not able to eat zebras, as, which is their primary prey, then they'll go hungry. And then after they go hungry, then we expect their population to decline. But that's not what we saw after we did our analysis. So we were a little bit surprised. And then after analyzing some more data, that's when we realized that lions actually uh, shifted their diet to eating more buffaloes. So the lions actually were able to to switch their diet and, you know, killing more buffaloes. Although it's actually difficult to kill buffaloes because it takes up to five to 10 adult lions to bring down a buffalo because the, the buffaloes are aggressive and they tend to kind of fight back mm-hmm. compared to um, zebras. And it's some, it takes like, let's say, two to three uh, adult lions to bring down a, a zebra.
5: Wow. So I guess that's good news for the zebras. But um, Jake, can you tell us what's going to happen to them? Is their population just going to get really big in these treeless landscapes?
1: That's a good question. We think that probably is is not likely in that zebra numbers are controlled by grass. So they're controlled by their food supply, which is in turn controlled by rainfall. So they seem to vary independently of what the lions are doing. On the other hand, it is possible that this prey switching from zebra to buffalo that Douglas just described could reduce the number of buffalo on this property.
5: And is the cascade of effects going to keep going beyond even reducing buffalo? Like, uh, do fewer zebra kills also affect the vultures or some other scavengers?
1: Yeah, that's another great question. Um, We really don't know. Whenever there are big species invasions, like with this big-headed ant, there there are winners and losers. And sometimes those take a while to reveal themselves. So I could imagine something like that happening. The thing that I think, is on both Douglas's and my radar, is that this particular tree, this myrmecophyte, is a key food for globally endangered black rhinos. So that, I think, is the next thing that we likely would look at.
5: Where do you go from here? So what's next for your research in this area?
1: The next things we're really interested in, in looking at is whether the removal or the eradication of big-headed ants will revert those invaded areas back to something that resembles their kind of natural or pristine state it's possible that we remove the invasive ant and the acacia ants recolonize they defend trees and we get something resembling the savanna prior to that big-headed Ant invasion. It's also possible that we remove the big headed ants and then nothing happens, in which case it would say that it's more difficult to restore this ecosystem than we might have thought originally. The second thing, and Douglas mentioned this in one of his earlier answers, is that it takes three to four times the number of lions to bring down a buffalo than it does a zebra. And frequently, in the Serengeti greater ecosystem to the south, male lions are involved in hunting buffalo, which is pretty unusual. They typically are not involved in hunting other prey. So, we're actually interested in whether this big headed ant invasion is causing changes to the social structure of lion prides and different hunting groups of lions.
5: Thank you both so much for coming to tell us about how these teeny tiny ants have had such a massive effect.
1: Absolutely. Thanks a bunch for your interest.
5: Jacob Gohin is a professor, and Douglas Kamaru is a graduate student, both at the Department of Zoology and Physiology at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming.
0: That's it for today. Lots of folks helped make the show happen this week, including...
5: Phyllis Samares, Danielle Johnson. Beth Rami,
0: Nahima Ahmed. And many more. Next time, we'll dive into the sensitive science of shark smell. Probably best not to boop that snoop. I'm Charles Bergquist. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.
6: There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.